Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History podcast, where the history is wacky, and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian and Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey there, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Dear World Love History podcast. On this episode, we're joined by the magnificent word sorceress, Juliette Vandermolen, who is the author of the powerful poetry collection, Confess, the Untold Story of Dorothy Good. Confess tells the story of four-year-old Dorothy, the youngest person accused of and imprisoned for witchcraft during the Salem Witch Trials. Yes, you heard that right, four years old. Dorothy would never escape the trauma she endured at the hands of her so-called community. Juliette can be found on Twitter at... J underscore Vandermolen, that's V as in Victor, A, N as in Nancy, D as in dog, E, R as in Robert, M as in monkey, O, L, E, N as in Nancy, Instagram at Juliet.writes, and her website, JulietWrites.com. Stay tuned at the end of the episode because the time has come. We'll be announcing our season two, episode one topic after the interview. Without any further ado, it's time to rock and roll. I'm Juliet Vandermolen. And I'm an American living in Wales, um, and I'm a, an author and an artist. I write poetry, and I've written, I guess this is book number four now, um, my most recent book, Confess, The Untold Story of Dorothy Good, um, which is poetry about a young girl who was accused of witchcraft in Salem Village um, back in the 1600s, and it's coming out with Twist in Time Press in um, October. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Juliet. Hello. It's good to be here. It's fabulous to have you here. Right? All right. So when it comes to Dorothy Good and the Salem Witch Trials, what really inspired you to tell this story? So I was actually listening to um, season one of a podcast called Unobscured with Aaron Mankey who also does um, the podcast Lore, which is amazing. And he, it was really interesting because he decided to do an entire season on the Salem Witch Trials. And I was like, wow, that, that's a lot of information. <laughs> a lot of information. So I did this sort of deep dive listening. But within one of the episodes, there was just like maybe a two-minute conversation about this young girl named Dorothy Good, who was four years old who was arrested um, and tried for witchcraft. And the reason that they talked about her was because her mother was Sarah Good, who was a big big name during those trials. And, And then that was kind of like, it was like, well, we don't really know much about her. And yeah, it's really atrocious that she was so young. And I, having grown up in America, had never heard her name, um, never heard anything about that, and was really shocked. Um, that that had happened. And I thought, I want to find out more about her. So it sort of like pushed me down this rabbit hole to try and find whatever I could about Dorothy Good. How hard was it to actually find research on Dorothy? And how much mm. research did you end up doing at the end of it all? 
Well, to find research on Dorothy was, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, it was really, really difficult. Um, I found the arrest warrant for her. And so I first started going through like um, Salem's, just like the trial transcripts. I was scouring for anything. And I did, well, I have a whole bibliography of research that I did. So what I would do in addition to going online is I would go and I would visit a library here in Wales that's like a residential library. And I would spend like a day a week there because you can't check out the books and take them home. You can only use them Mm. there. So I would just dig into as many books as I could find that had to do with um, the Salem witch trials that had to do with even the things that happened in Europe and the things that happened in the UK regarding Mm. witchcraft and just to kind of connect those dots to the colonies Um, and see like where things came from. So I did a lot of research that wasn't specifically related to Dorothy Good because I needed the context, the larger context, but it was very hard to find anything about her at all, which I guess is what made me realize that like, nobody knows about her, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I just thought that's really sad. And I thought of, you know, I'm a mother and So I just thought like, this is a child that has just been completely forgotten and was pretty much, you know, like unwanted and never allowed to be a child. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it's a really sad story. And I felt like, you know, we know there's so many stories that we do know, but we can never know enough stories from the people who experience these kinds of things. Like, I I feel like we need their voices probably now more than ever. Yeah, Um, absolutely agree with that. Out of curiosity, the arrest warrant, was it Dorothy Good that they wrote on there or Dorcas Good? So they wrote Dorcas Good. Um, Yeah. And I was like, you know, this is just like to add insult to injury, right? We can't even get the right, be bothered to get the right name on here. Right. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to figure that out. But I mean, how many... How many four-year-olds did they arrest? But I think it, there's even in one of the poems where it's just kind of like sarcastic, where I'm just like, you know, they couldn't even bother to get my name right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for that. So, yeah. so that's the thing too is that even in a even in an official historical document, she's not named properly, and and that just feels wrong. Yeah, and I think that kind of fluffs up some of the research also because there was a book that we read where it was like, oh no, her name is. Dorcas, but they call her Dorothy. And then there was another book where it was like, no, her name is Dorothy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, even like historians are apparently confused by this. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, there's things like we don't, we don't really know. We know how old she was. So we can kind of figure out like when she was born, but nobody knows like when she died, how, right. how old, how long she lived. Do you know what I mean? Like, we just, we don't know. There's like, um, information from her father basically saying that like she was so messed up from everything that he had to pay for her to be like in someone's care like she, you know which is totally understandable yeah what is it in one of the books that we used for um our salem episodes it one of them literally goes like by person who's been accused or executed and it's like what I thought was astounding is that Dorothy didn't even have her own section. Mm-hmm. She was literally tacked on to the end of her mother's where like a little paragraph that was kind of like, oh yeah, this is how she got released. Her father basically did this with her. She was traumatized the end. That's all we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, oh, poor Dorothy. Well, and I think there's this idea that like people are like, oh, well, she she wasn't killed. She didn't die like in the during the you know trials and she wasn't executed. So, right. you know, oh, she was somehow lucky and, and, you know, made it out and all of this stuff. And I just think to myself, yeah, but did she ever really get to live? You know, right. like as somebody who, you know, I've, I've gone through trauma and I struggle with PTSD in a time where I have help for that and support and resources for that. And that certainly didn't happen to me at four years old. So I just, I can't imagine what her life must've been like afterwards. And initially I thought part of the direction I might go with this book was to try and imagine what that would have been like. But it was just, just thinking about it just like crippled my brain. Like it was just, it was so traumatic. Like I just really couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do it justice. I think that's the difficult part also because she's four. So her brain is still developing Mm -hmm. and she's taking all of this in. And it's not like, you know, she was sitting in a nice clean cell on her own and she had a bed and she had a pillow. Like she was chained to a wall with other women who were chained to a wall in a really dingy, disgusting cell where they basically sat in their own filth. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, because you had to. So, what people don't, a lot of people don't realize is that when you were jailed, you paid for your accommodation. Right. right? So, if you didn't have money, like the goods didn't have money, then, mm-hmm. you know, you probably weren't eating much. You were definitely, definitely, it was filthy, you know, and you were treated kind of like an animal. And probably people treated their livestock better than they did. Right. You know, treat them. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it just. I think the other thing too, is that when she, when she confessed, you know, when they get this confession from her and, you know, get her to say these things about her mother, you know, I, she's not, she's not understanding what she's doing at all. You know, she's probably just trying to get, get through this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And as you know, like when people try to extract confessions, there's this equal part, like, I don't know, good cop, bad cop, you know, like, try and kind of gently get her to come around. But if she doesn't, you know, they're not above like using force. Yeah. So, right. so yeah, I don't think she had any clue what she was doing and maybe she never totally understood it, but because I don't know how sheltered she was from the facts afterwards. In my mind, I sort of hope that she never really understood it completely because I yeah. can't imagine living with that. Right. The yeah. guilt of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, what was it? She confessed against her own mother. Her mother, her little sister died. Yeah. Newborn sister. Well, yeah. Her mom was, her mom was pregnant when she was arrested. And that's uh, one of the poems in here about pleading your belly is that that's what pregnant women would be able to do. So basically it was like a stay of execution until you had your baby. So, you know, thanks a lot for that. Right. But, um, but yeah, she delivered, the baby was delivered in the prison and um, died in the prison as well. And I think it's like she lived, but in terms of her heart was beating, but there are different types of death. Yeah. And Dorothy Good died in that cell. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's just so incredibly tragic. I think it's a real testament to like, when, when is something over, you know? So like in history, when bad things happen, like when it, like the Holocaust is over, but is it over for people that survive that? You know what I mean? It's never over. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, I think sometimes sometimes there's this idea that, oh, um, I don't know, maybe restoration has been paid or somehow some kind of legal justice has been meted out. But it's never really over for the people that survive it. Right. And you can't bring back the ones who are dead. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, there is no switch that you can just flip Mm -hmm. that says, okay, I'm over it now. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah, especially for Dorothy at such a young age where she couldn't, I don't know that she could really take in all the information and process it. I mean, you're four. Just imagine how manipulated she must have been. Um, You know, she had this uh, kind of birthmark on her hand, like a little bite mark. And it's just sort of, oh, um, my mom said that a snake bit me. But, you know, to me, when I hear that, I think of something that, I don't know, like my children, when they were born, my twins, they had jaundice. And they also had their first um, Halloween picture taken. They were like dressed as pumpkins and they were babies. And so I used to tease them and say, well, we got you from the pumpkin patch because you were born. You know, so it's like stories that you tell your children to like kind of explain things when they're little and, right. you know, haha kind of thing. And maybe her mother did say that, but probably not the way that it was uh, made out to be. Right. right. And they did twist things a lot. And especially like, you know, again, four year old Dorothy race in Puritan society where you're taught from the day you're born to respect any adult. Mm hmm. And listen to what they say and do what they say. Exactly. And like a lot of the things that she was doing, like, oh, they, they said, oh, well, you know, she wasn't very well behaved. Like she would bite people and she would kick people. Well, she was four. Right. right? And if you put me in a prison cell, I'd probably bite you too. Right. Yeah. And even before that, if you think about the kind of life that her family lived, like nobody liked mm-hmm. them. They were not, right. They were not like some upstanding citizens, and she wasn't like living in the lap of luxury or something, and some spoiled brat. You know, she. I think you know she probably responded in a way a lot of children do when they they don't have the ability to like process why they're frustrated or how to handle things. You know, and it's it's just that's something that kids do. Just even even normal regular kids that don't have that kind of stress go through like a phase where they're like biting all the time and you're like, and then one day it stops. It's a developmental thing, but like, would they understand that then? And even if they did, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, that's just evidence of, you know, she's possessed or whatever. Right. Uh huh. Yeah, everything had a supernatural cause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I could do that. I just tripped over that rock. A witch did it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty clumsy, so <laughs> got a lot of witches around you, Juliet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I you know, it's it's we laugh about it, but like I my son, uh, you know, I remember I don't know, they don't understand like what's real and what's not real. Like they can't separate fiction from like a story from like real life, you know? And so it's, you can make them believe anything. You know? yeah. I remember my son was, was jumping on his bed upstairs and he was probably, he was probably about four years old and I was downstairs and I heard it and I yelled, stop jumping on your bed. And it got really quiet and he came downstairs and his eyes were huge. And he said, how did you know? jumping on the bed and I said well I'm I'm just magic like that's what moms do so he believed that for a really long time you can can make kids believe anything and you can uh, manipulate them so easily and 
if you have bad intentions, things like this can happen, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think that's the fantastic thing about children is that it's something that we tend to lose as we get older, but their imaginations are just beyond, like they don't have limits. Mm -hmm. True. (laughs) Definitely true. If you ever want to know the truth about something, just ask a kid, you know, right? I will tell you. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have that filter. Yeah. 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 But they they can sense things and they Mm -hmm. can pick up on things that people don't even realize. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when it comes to, you know, like doing a deep dive into history and doing all of this research, there's a difference between just researching and just kind of implementing those sources that you find into a manuscript. Mm -hmm. So was it always the plan to incorporate like the arrest warrant? And I think you have Ann Putnam's apology in there. Um, Or was that something that as you were writing, you were like, oh, this would be a really great way to kind of like a really great way to kind of just enhance the manuscript by adding this like historical element. Well, I think I knew I like I started with just like the footnotes, you know, where I was like, especially where some of these poems were standalone, if they were published by themselves, or if I read them at a poetry reading, I, I needed to be able to give some kind of context to what was going on. I think that when I would read something like Ann Putnam's apology is a really good example because I read that and I remember sitting there in the library reading this and just being so angry about it. And I didn't have, I hadn't written the poem yet about apologies, but I was sitting there thinking about like, how much does an apology mean? What, you know, what even is an apology and who benefits from that? And, was she really sorry, you know, and I'm, you know, of course, advocating on Dorothy's behalf and everybody else's (laughs) behalf. But I wrote the poem. And I felt like the poem could stand by itself. But I thought, you know, maybe I'm always uh, afraid of putting too much of my own bias in, which I know I can't like completely get rid of no matter what I just I don't believe that there's a real hard kind of objectivity when you're looking at history. But I thought these are her actual words. So you know what, like, let's just put this here for people to read and consider. And maybe that paired with the poem kind of gives some kind of counterbalance, you know, like I'm saying basically like, and thanks, but no thanks, you know, like your apology is not enough. But here's her apology. So like you decide how you feel about it. Okay. And I felt that way about the arrest warrant too. Like, it's one thing to read about it in a poem or for me to tell you that there was this arrest warrant, but to see the actual like document or the words, the official words is kind of, it's sobering, you know, it's like, yes, this thing, it really happened. Right. Yeah. Shockingly enough. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like history is one ginormous joke. Or I'm just like, they're kidding, right? This didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I feel like, and I, I think that too. And when you read the trial transcripts and you read about the spectral evidence, the ghostly evidence, mm-hmm. you're like, how could anyone believe this? How could this happen? But, you know, I, I wonder what's happening today that 200 years from now, people are going to look back and go, what were they thinking? Like, yeah. how, you know, I feel like it's, there's always going to be that kind of element, you know, and I think we have to be super careful about that because we still keep repeating the same behaviors that we saw in Salem, 
in different ways, you know. So we just have to be really careful just because we don't call people a witch and just because we don't take them up to Gallus Hill and put a noose around their neck doesn't mean that we're not metaphorically doing the same things over and over again because human nature is not so great sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think what gets me also in regards to the the spectral evidence and the the magic these witches possessed is that if they have all this magic and they can send their spectral forms and they can bite you from afar and they can do this, that, and the other, but they're not magic enough to poof themselves away. Right. I know. So I was like, that was one of my big problems all the time was like, if I'm a witch, like, can I just like break myself free out of prison? Like why why would I stay in prison? But you know, So this is where I dug back into a lot of old history. And I think it was in the Malleus that I read that it basically comes down to like, if God fearing men put their hands on you and condemn you or accuse you, like you have no power against that. So somehow there's a limitation into that narrative. And I'm like, oh, of course. Right. Of course, there's a caveat. Then I have another question. If they can send their spectral you know, their specters out and torture people. Why don't they just then make those people forget before they ever get God's people with like godly hands on them or whatever? Yeah. Like they certainly weren't crafty. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That, yeah. Like it it doesn't make any sense at all. No, none of it makes sense. What you have is you just have this sort of people looking for someone to blame yeah, and I don't know why when tensions fester, that's how it tends to come out, an attack on people they deem unworthy. Mm-hmm. I think it feels like there was a lot of stuff going on at that time, right? There, mm-hmm. there, have, yeah. been, um, there have been trouble between the colonists and the indigenous people, and um, there had been wars and massacres, and then there were crops failing and all of this stuff. Well, how do you, if you're a colony that's supposedly like here because you're so blessed by, you know, your religion and God, how do you reconcile the fact that all these bad things are happening? Like, it it can't be your God because, <laughs> because that's going to be a problem, you know? And so, like, who or what can we point to that is like a problem we can solve? you know, something we can do something about. And I think when you look at people who don't, who are marginalized, who don't have, who don't have power, money, um, all of that kind of stuff, I think they become very easy targets to say like, oh, it's, you know, it's that person, it's that group of people that's causing the problem. So, you know, we'll just get rid of those people and everything will be fine. See, that's what I like about the ancient cultures. At least they were like, the gods did it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mount Vesuvius erupted. That's because, you know, Zeus was mad. Yeah, they were like temperamental, those gods. Yeah. <laughs> like natural disasters, gods are fighting. Yeah, exactly. So there was no like, there was no person on earth to blame for that, right? So like, right. it relieves you of that type of, I don't, that type of solution, you know? It's it's really interesting how that happens. And like I said, it still happens, it still happens today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We blame groups of people or blame certain people for things. And a lot of it comes out of fear, you know, so all these bad things are happening. We don't know how to fix it. And people start getting afraid and Mm -hmm. people start getting afraid. They'll grab onto anything. Like, especially if someone with power and control can say, you know what, it's going to be fine. We will fix this for you. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you look at Margaret Atwood's Handmaid Tale, um, one of the one of the lines that stuck with me from watching it was when Aunt Lydia says, "There's freedom to, and there's freedom from, and we're." We are keeping you safe. So it's freedom from, you know, uh, violence and rape and all this kind of thing. And we'll keep you protected. So you could either choose to have the freedom to do whatever you want and not be safe, or we can take some of your freedoms and keep you safe. And so I think, you know, that's how that's how people control through fear. Yes, 100%. So what would you say are some challenges of writing historical poetry? Oh, Challenges are definitely like, what do I include and what do I walk away from or what you you can't put it all in there. Like, it's just, it's too much. I guess figuring out like what the most important things are, or for me, like how to connect the dots to make it all make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was growing up, history was like boring, you know, (laughs) like memorize these dates and right. You know, this is this war happened here or whatever, but it wasn't stories about people. So it's trying to give the historical context in a way that makes it interesting enough for people to actually remember and think about. And the other thing, too, is that like in poetry, like I don't want to just regurgitate historical fact because you can go read that in a book, any kind of history book. So can I open this window or pull back this curtain and give you a real peek into like a set or a scene so that you can feel like immersed in it just just for those few stanzas just for the moment and then we can pull you back out so that it's a little bit of a more of an immediate experience for the reader I feel like because I write both historical fiction and historical poetry and it's like it's always one of those things where it's like I care enough but will my reader care Yeah. And it's like, I always run into that issue, like something that I've literally turned into like, it went from like a story to like an epic poem. Literally, I had to write it for one of my classes. What is it? Renaissance and Enlightenment Literature. Mm. And she was like, you can write an epic poem. And I was like, well, (laughs) don't mind if I do. (laughs) And I gave her this like 300 line poem. But it's like it's one of the Beowulf part two. It could have been. It really could have been. (laughs) But it was like um, because it was a story about um, Masada, and it's just like it it puts perspective. Because it's like when I look at it this way, like when I have fiction, I have in some ways more room to expand on ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it's like when it comes to poetry, it's like you literally have to be a master because you have to pick the perfect lines like when you're writing to just kind of like get the feeling or the scene across to the reader without them kind of being all like what yeah you don't I always say like for me prose like fiction has really wide lanes yes (laughs) and I'll I'll just use the whole lane you know if you give it to me (laughs) um but poetry it's I don't know. You know, the thing is, is that when you look at when I when I write something and I have those wide lanes, then I have room to like explore a little bit more or I can bring you there eventually, you know, but with poetry, it's like I feel like I can only hold your attention for these because, you know, I don't know a lot of people that are probably going to like sit through all of Beowulf 
I didn't like Beowulf, you know? So I've only got like this sort of space that I can really hold your attention. So I don't know if I had to, if I had to tell you the story in a soundbite, like how would I do that in a way that's compelling and gets the information across, you know, it's, it's uh, definitely a challenge. Yeah. Which is why my hat is always off to like you and Juliet Siva, Kate Garrett, all of you. And I'm just like, yes, thank you. You are wonderful. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the poems, when I write them, a lot of times they're a lot longer and more verbose. And I know that sounds strange because some of these poems are like three pages in here, which is long. But <laughs> I go back later and have to be like, no, 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 not this. <laughs> and it's it's not easy to do but at the end of the day it does make it better I think well you know what they say you cannot edit a blank page (laughs) this is true I would rather have I would rather have more and pair it back than not enough yeah you know and I think the other challenge is how much of my own personal politics and thoughts and social morals are in there you know like I'm telling history through my own lens Right. And recognizing that I have my own biases and I have my own my own history that influences the reading that I do of history. So, you know, it's I guess people just have to understand that in a world where sometimes we don't use our critical thinking skills as much as we probably should. It's always important to consider the source. Right. Very true. So what would you say draws you to um, certain time periods or historical people? Oh, what draws me? Gosh, I think for me, like, as far as Salem goes, like, that was something that I had already learned a little bit about. And so I think we tend to kind of gravitate towards things that feel familiar. And so, like, when I heard, okay, there's going to be a podcast about this, it's going to be about this. I'm like, okay, I already know a lot about that. But you know, this sounds like something interesting to listen to. And what I find every time I think I know a lot about something, I find there's so much I don't know mm-hmm. so much. I think I'm tempted as I get older, especially to visit, revisit things that I think are familiar to me that I was taught or raised to believe or whatever and dig deeper because I find that I uncover all kinds of things that I didn't know. And those are the things that help shape my perspective. But I also, you know, I think about, um, and we were talking about this before, like, I'm very interested in English history and Scottish history. And I'm also very interested in in all things that are connected to the monarchy, because I just, I just find it fascinating. And I think I like to look at some of those lives that, that I can't imagine living myself, you know? Yeah, it's, it's. Interesting. I've tried it in the past just being like, okay, if I were the queen of whatever, and then I'm like, okay, I don't think I want to be the queen of whatever, because yeah, you get a crown and pretty jewels, but like, it's work. It's a lot of work balancing, you know, all those people against one another and trying to stay on top. And I don't know, I think I'd have to sleep with both eyes open. I think I decided that I don't want a position of power (laughs) anywhere. But what I find is when I start reading about, I don't know, like the royal court in Tudor times, then I run across someone like Anna Skew, who I know nothing about, who was apparently like this 
she was just kind of this there you run into all these like side characters I guess if it was like in a in a movie you know it's like the supporting actor or whatever but you're like hey that person is actually really interesting and I want to find out more about what, right. what they're doing and what they have to say you know so there's there's just all these kind of little hidden gems within these larger pieces of history yeah, and it also, it's just so frustrating also because it's like, you know, we've got all of these documents about Henry VIII, about Elizabeth, about Mary, Queen of Scots. Get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but those, but normal everyday people, it's so hard to piece together their mm-hmm. lives and how they lived and what they did and, you know, how, you know, the day went and when it went bad, what did they do then? Right. Yeah. Like- what was it like to be a regular person, you know? Yeah. You know, those, if, you know, let's say, you know, Mary Queen of Scots is the main character and uh, the people around her and the court are the side characters. It's literally the everyday people are the background extras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not, you don't even see them. You just hear them outside the castle, right? Yeah. I, I actually, there was a poem that I wrote um, about Mary Queen of Scots on her wedding day in France. And it was written from the perspective of this, these children that were getting ready to go see the big spectacle with their parents. And they were just like everyday ordinary people. And that was the hardest poem to write because it's hard. It's just hard to imagine what everyday life was like. Cause like you said, we kind of know what life was like for people that were well known. And you know, when you read and it's like, people were cheering and it's like, okay, how many average everyday people came out to see this though? Was it also for them? Yay. You know, Mary's getting married or was it like, "Mm, don't care. For some people, I mean, it might've been like their only day off. You know what I mean? Finally, we get like a little bit of a break, you know, and they're throwing like, um, they're throwing money out into the crowd and stuff. Maybe you'll get some of that, you know, it's just like, kind of like, it made me sad. I mean, I was thinking about like people being around a table, just getting the crumbs. You know what I mean? Yeah. They had a tough life. I don't think they get enough credit. No, definitely at all. Not. Maybe that's what Hollywood needs to do. A movie about the everyday man and woman. <laughs> everyday people. With that. <laughs> they may not have been attending jousts, but. Well, it's just like, okay. Well, for example, you guys did a whole lot on the Titanic and we know a lot about the Astors and all these other people in the Titanic. And we don't have as many, we have some, but we don't have as many specific details of like the people in steerage, you know, not to the degree that we do of the people that would have been in like first class Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so that's kind of the same. I don't know. The whole boat's probably a big um, metaphor for, for lots of things. Especially some of those names went unrecorded since they never, you know, updated obviously the ship's manifest mm-hmm. or passenger exactly. list together. So And I, I thought it was really interesting. And so that was my first introduction to your podcast. And I thought it was interesting that you you tried to tell whatever stories you could find. And mm-hmm. so I feel like that's that's the harder part of looking into history is trying to find all of those things and trying to shine a light on that. Yeah, although like the one thing I do like is that it showed just how many more stories we had in, you know, 1912 than we would have had in 1712. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's like we've come farther, Mm -hmm. but it's still progressing. Like we're everyday people. But, you know, it's still like like who writes history? Who decides who decides what's important to record? 
probably now with people being able to, I don't know, self-publish things, people being able to write blogs, have Twitter accounts, things like that, we probably will have more information on just everyday people than we ever would have had in the past. And I wonder how that will help shape the future or what people will think about when they look back on it, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's true. I wish I could go forward just for that reason. (laughs) I want to see what it looks like. Like, did we expand? Did we do a better job? You're like, what stupid things did we do? (laughs) (laughs) That also. (laughs) Oh, that's what happened in 2025? I'm avoiding that year entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Say, get your flux capacitor ready, you know? Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. So while you were writing Confess, what, or even any other manuscript that you've written, what does your writing process look like? Um, A lot of reading. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of reading, um, a lot of staring at a blank screen going, how, how can I even like, it's a, it's a lot of thinking. <laughs> it's not as exciting as it probably should be. Um, but I would like, what I would do is I would try to intersperse, like I would read documents and then I would say, okay, I'm going to be done with reading for now. Cause I could literally bury myself in the research forever and not ever get to the writing. Mm. But then also, you know, going in and making highlights, I would just make a note, like, I don't know, like the apology thing, like I made a note, like, poem ideas, apology, like I have to write about that, you know, mm-hmm. and then I would have to spend like a few days sort of letting everything that I read kind of, I don't know, sink in and kind of it's in the hopper, it's kind of working in the background, you know, and then a lot of times, it's hard for me to find my way into the poem. And so a lot of times I'll just start writing like what words, like what words do I associate with apologies or with Salem or with witchcraft or whatever it is. And a lot of those things never even see the poem, you know, they're just thoughts. And so it's sort of um, just throwing all of that up onto the screen or into my notebook. And then I spend some days where I don't read anything and I just sit with the poems and do a ton of free writing. How long does that process usually take if you've got a ballpark figure, just out of curiosity? Well, I would go to the library once a week and I would be there for like eight hours reading. Wow. Yeah, it was it was intense. Uh, there was a break for, you know, tea and scones, of course. But Naturally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Naturally. That's a must. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, But so I would spend like that whole day and then my brain would just be crammed full. And it was probably like another couple days, I think, before I could even sit down to say, I'm going to write something like I would have some notes, you know, and then it probably take me almost to that next week of the time to go research again before I had kind of had the first drafts of poems um, put together. uh, For me, it was a very slow process, like books that I have written before have mostly been about like my own experience, my life experience. So those, even though they're harder to write from an emotional standpoint, I know, I know the material, you know? So in some ways that can be a little bit easier. I just like think about like, cause I, having seen your bibliography, (laughs) um, it's just like one of those things where it's like, I'm just thinking like, my gosh, the amount of time just to read these books, to let it all kind of sink in and marinate. and Well, I mean, that's the thing. And then there were some things I read that were, that were so disturbing that mm. I could not, I mean, I would say I'm not an overly emotional person. Like uh, I'm pretty Midwestern. I don't cry a lot. 
But there were some things that I read that when the the gravity of it like hit me, I realized it, it just touched me so much that it was um it was devastating, you know? Right. And it's different than like if you watch something and you watch like something that's a true crime thing and you see like horrific violence and it's awful, but and you see it. But then if you read about something from the past like this, your my brain just like my imagination even just kicks into gear and suddenly I can picture what's going on. I think it was in the Malleus. Not going to say it. it was in the Malleus, the witch's hammer, the hammer of witchcraft. That I was reading, you know, that when they would burn witches in Europe, that they would actually look for the greenest wood that they could find because it would burn the slowest. Oh, that's oh. sickening. And that it it was like just a few lines in the book, and that the book is huge. And there were lots of horrible things I read, but that thing wormed its way into my head and I wanted to write a poem about it at the end of the day I could not even I couldn't even write about that because it was just it was too much and Mm -hmm. I it actually made me break down like I just could not the amount of cruelty that was layered on to everything else was just like why you know right just like I can't comprehend it Mm -mm. so yeah there's some difficult difficult parts and in reading um, things I definitely agree with that. I mean, I had that with um, the Titanic when I read about the sinking and then the execution of the Romanovs. Like I had Mm -hmm. to, I was so distraught. Like I was sitting in the same room with Renee that I think I was doing a really good ugly cry with both Mm -hmm. of those. Mm -hmm. Also, it's really funny because like with reading the research for those two topics, that's how we knew where we were in the research because we like look at each other, both of us like tears just like streaming down our faces and we're just like... Yeah, we're there. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting too, because like you know you're gonna get there. Like you know mm-hmm. it's gonna turn out well. We all right. know that. But then to actually just I guess be there and be in that moment and really sit with it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a fact on a timeline. We're talking about right. people and real people, no matter what we what people might have thought of them, they're human beings, you know? And so that's yeah. Just really difficult thing to wrap your brain around sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you get to that moment and then you find out things you never knew before. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sorry. I'm going to have nightmares now about the fact that they had to. They were looking for the greenest wood. Oh, now I feel really bad for telling you. That. <laughs> no, really, it's fine. <laughs> My brain is already a bit of a nightmare, but <laughs> that's one more. <laughs> I think inside your head, it kind of looks like the nightmare before Christmas. (laughs) Without the singing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's slightly more terrifying. Everything is silent. Sometimes they're screaming. Sometimes they're screaming. I need a shirt that says that. Sometimes they're screaming. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. These are, and I, I think it's good that it's difficult to hear those things and it's difficult to look back on those things because to me, that means that I'm not desensitized, mm-hmm. you know, that I haven't lost those pieces of my humanity. Sometimes I look around the world that we live in and I'm like, truly, like, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some things, some things you tend to numb out to, I think, as a, a means of survival, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it, I think it's really 
I think it's good for me when I can connect with with the past like that. Yes. Yeah. And I think they deserve someone that's going to be sad for them and cry mm-hmm. with them or for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And someone who's not going to forget them and forget what yes. they went through, you know, because that's where we run into trouble is when we start forgetting. That's that's not a good place to be in. Yeah, not at all. Unfortunately, I feel like that's where we are. Many people forget when they shouldn't. Yeah, but, you know, hopefully, I don't know, you know, I, I just, I have to hope that people that are writing, people that are making art, that are making music, that are trying to amplify their voices are, at least that stuff's going to be recorded. You know what I mean? At least those voices are going to be heard. They may not be heard in the way that they want to be heard now, which is already a travesty and very, very sad. Um, yes. but. They won't be like two lines in a history book, hopefully, like you know, Dorothy. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, um, so at the end of your incredibly beautiful book and heartbreaking, yes, but we loved every moment. Yep. Uh, you included the list of names of those executed and those arrested, which is, it just had such an impact on me because it's like you read through the book and then you have that, like you're confronted with all the names, uh, which I think was such a great tribute to all of the people who mm-hmm. were affected by these trials. Was that something that you knew you wanted to do from the offset or is that something that came along a little bit later in the process? Well, I think I think it's something I knew I wanted to do early on, just like I knew that the book, the only dedication I could make was for Dorothy, you know? Mm-hmm. because it really is for her um, and it's for everyone like her. But this this list was so important to me because I think it's so easy to say, okay, like 19 people were killed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, in the context of larger humanity, 19 people doesn't sound like a significant, I don't know, event or whatever, but it is. And it's not just all of these people that were executed. And even all these people that were arrested, it's all of the people, they had families, you know, right. they were, these were mothers and fathers and sisters and all of that. And I think I just felt like it was really important that if I was going to write something about any, any one of them, they all should be included, you know? Mm. So even though yeah. this is Dorothy's story, it's, it's the story of, of one of them, you know? And I just, I also think that even when I put the names together, and looked at them all I was like wow like this is Mm -hmm. and you see people in here with like I don't know like the Hobbs there's like three different Hobbs in here like there's families of people Mm -hmm. yeah it's really sobering to look at and I think I felt like it was a good way to end the book like kind of like this book isn't about me you know this book is about Mm -hmm. something so much bigger and I of course wrote the poems for it but the most important part about the book is remembering all of these people. I wanted that to be the last word. Because I'll be honest, when I saw it, like, I definitely started crying. Because, I mean, I was crying during the book. But especially that, that, like, kind of put me over the edge in a good way. Because it's, mm-hmm. like, it's just a shout out of just remember me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really agree. Because it was, like, when I was flipping through it the first time before I ever even sat down to read your manuscript. And I saw that at the end. And I was, like, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> My heart's going to die. It's fine. (laughs) And it was like when I finally sat down and, you know, I was reading your manuscript and I got to the end and I'll admit I lost it. I was like, like Mm -hmm. all of these lives had been affected. Mm -hmm. Um, Their families' lives had been affected. People died like Mm -hmm. this. And like, again, like 19 people, that's 
not that many in, in the grand scheme of things, but it's like this is still to this day considered one of the most tragic events in American history. Right. Yeah. Because of like the gravity of it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that it is only 19 mm-hmm. is, is just as, as much of an impact because we know their names. Mm-hmm. We know who they were. That's true. I mean, and the fact that we know their names is really important and it makes it, it makes them more real. Yeah. I think that's part of, of a bigger problem when we have people that are, that die in wars. And, you know, like when we were talking about the Holocaust before, like some people we don't even have names for. Yep. You know, and it makes it harder to remember them like in their full, I guess, capacity. Cause like naming things is so important. Mm-hmm. Yep. We have to name things just like we try to categorize things to make sense of the world and to, to know someone they'll say like, do you know Juliet? Well, you're, they're going to ask for me by name, you know, right. and your name mm-hmm. means something. So I think it's important to remember names. Yeah. Well, it's like, that's why it's like, it's interesting when you talk about like witchcraft, like hunts or witch hunts, whatever, in like Europe, when it's like, yeah, 300 people died during this witch hunt in Scotland. And it's like, okay, and it is, it's just one of those like, my God, 300 people died. But since we don't have any names, mm-hmm. like it just becomes a number, mm-hmm, a statistic. Yeah. It becomes harder to connect and to truly like feel for the people that lost and obviously I of course I feel for the people who died I think it just sort of like it puts this sort of filter on it where it just becomes a little blurry you know Mm -hmm. it's this awful thing and we recognize that it's awful but it's very hard like anything that we can do to humanize people and to connect with them it yeah it helps you know Mm -hmm. when we want to take away human qualities of people and not see them as people anymore what do we do? Well, we do what the Nazis did. Mm-hmm. We tattoo numbers on them. We yep. do what we do when we put them in prison. We assign them a prisoner number and that's what they're known by. Yep. So so names are really important. And I think that's uh, another reason why I wanted to put them in the book. I, I love that you put them at the end of the book, which is such a weird thing to say. But I do. I just I love that it's there. And I think it's a beautiful way to end mm-hmm. the manuscript. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So after reading Confess, what would you want a reader to kind of set your book down thinking about? Like what issues or lessons did you want to leave them pondering? There's there's a lot of things. I guess I guess the most important thing and I end the book with a poem that is written as if Dorothy is writing it about remembering her. But I think the thing that I want people to think about is that there is so much more to history than what we are taught. And that there are many more people than we even know about like Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, really important to look back into history. And when we read about people in powerful positions, to really dig around and find out what was going on behind the scenes and to think about the people that didn't have voices and that were marginalized and what they went through. And I think I want people to, I guess, remember, try to remember the forgotten Mm. and, you know, to really think about how we move forward, you know, and how we, how we listen to everyone, not just the people who are in powerful positions or the people with money or the biggest platforms, but how we listen to people's experiences, individual experiences, and decide how we're going to move forward as people, you know, how we're going to do it together. 
and what things are important to us. But yeah, I think, I think that's the biggest thing. And it was the most important thing to me when I was writing about Dorothy is that I want people to remember her, but it's not just Dorothy. I want them to remember people like Dorothy, you know, people that were on the margins mm-hmm. because ever, you know, they're, they're important. It's important that we remember them. And they, like, she didn't have a voice. I luckily enough have some talent as a writer and I can bring a voice to her, you know, but mm-hmm. I think all the time about my privilege that I grew up in and about what I'm doing to lift other people up, how I'm using that in a positive way. And so this book is just a reminder that there are a lot of people that get forgotten and that's not okay. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's that's why we try to focus on stories of, let's say, I guess, minor characters, we'll call them. Mm-hmm. Because they're just as important. They were loved by someone. They lived mm-hmm. a life. And they deserve to be heard. Exactly. Yep. Is there anything you wanted yeah. to add? To share? Um, I don't think so. I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to get the this book published um, with Twist in Time. And I'm really glad that I w- was in a position to be able to spend the time to research and write it. And I believe that I learn so much from reading about Dorothy and reading about the trials in, in Salem and what happened. And that enriches my life. And I, I hope that I hope that other people will come away from it, I guess, knowing something or maybe understanding something that they didn't before. And if I can, if I can do that for one person, you know, then, then I feel like I did something, something worth doing. The book is beautiful and emotional. And I think it's everything that it should be for Dorothy, everything that she deserves. Yeah, it hit the mark. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on here and talking with us. No, it's been great. Give me a call anytime you want to talk history. (laughs) (laughs) They take you up on that. We're always down to talk about history. Always. (laughs) Thanks so much for hanging out with us and Juliet on this bonus episode. And Juliet, so much love and a thousand thank yous for chatting with us. Definitely check out Confess, the untold story of Dorothy Good. It's an absolute must read and you won't be able to put it down. It's a powerful and emotional look at the Salem Witch Trials through the eyes of young Dorothy, who deserved, honestly, so much more than she received. We can, honestly, seriously, go on and on about this incredible collection, but we'll leave it here. We will just preface this with have tissues near you when you read. Confess is available for purchase on twistintimemag.com, barnesandnoble.com, indiebound.org, waterstones.com in the uk and amazon in the us uk and australia the ebook is also available through twistintimemag.com now autograph copies are available for purchase directly through juliet's website julietwrites.com you can find the full synopsis for the collection in our show notes as well as a link to read all the reviews that have come in so far and as always we'll link you up to the show notes in our episode description also full disclosure Confess was published by Twisted Press, an imprint of Twist in Time Literary Magazine, which is owned and managed by the two of us. The time has arrived. Season 2 will go live on Saturday, November 7th. We will open Season 2 with... Cue dramatic pause. Pirates! Yeah, buddy! It's been a long time coming. And the stars have finally aligned, and we'll be sailing into the Caribbean with our gunports blazing with cannon fire in November. Be there, or be a landlubber. Historians out!